Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Turn to Psalm 94 with me. This one's a little bit longer than our last one. Psalm 93, it just had five verses. This one's, I guess, more average-sized. Psalm 94. And it is another moving from fear to faith psalm. If you take a look at it, um, again, it's without any superscript that would give us any details about the author or the content or the context. But in the Septuagint, that's the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Um, it says that David uh, was a human author, and so does the Syriac, Arabic, Ethiopian early manuscripts. And we find the familiar moving from fear to faith um, outline uh, at the beginning of Psalm 94. Um, David expresses his fear and gives details about what might be causing it. And then David begins to focus on the facts, who God is, what God has done in the past for him, and what God's promised to do in the future for his people. And by the end of the song, we see David rising in faith to God. That's that's good for David, and that's glorifying to God. And uh, before we study this, let's pray. I also didn't um, read my prayer request list very well and well I forgot to pray for the all those in the path of the hurricane earlier so we'll take a moment to do that now I also um, forgot to pray Carnell handed me a note right before the service her brother Hudson Bryan was taken to the hospital in Lumberton this morning and um, she's not sure she just got that right before she came here not sure what's going on so um, but you know who knows what's going on God does right and so we'll go to him and ask him to um Overseeing this situation. Let's pray. Father, um, we do lift up Carnell's brother, and I pray that you give the medical team there wisdom about uh, how best to treat him. Lord, we, we pray for, for healing in, in whatever the situation is. Lord, I pray for peace for Carnell and the rest of the family as it can be anxious not knowing um, how he is or what's going on. But we're so glad that we serve an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God, that he's right there with him. And he knows exactly what's going on. And we're thankful that we serve a sovereign uh, Lord. And um, that there's nothing outside of, of your control or your power. And I pray that would give us peace this evening. Uh, not just for Carnell in, in this situation, but also for all those who've got loved ones in the path of the hurricane down in Florida. Lord, I pray for protection. There would be no loss of life. Um, God, I, I just pray that you keep safe, especially all those who have loved ones there. And we think of Jacob and the others who are at Bible College down there. Protect them and that campus. And, um, Lord, I pray that even in something like this, you would uh, use it for your glory. You'd find ways where they can minister and, and that even as a result of this, we might see people getting saved, uh, people turning to you. Uh, give us wisdom tonight, Father, as we come to Psalm 94. You have truth here that you want us to know 
you have truth here you want us to respond to. Use it to change us by your Holy Spirit. May there be nothing that obstructs his work in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. So in verses 1 through 7, this is the fear section where David expresses, reveals his fear. Um, uh, verse 1 begins this seven-verse fear section actually with a declarative factual statement about God's character followed by a prayer. He says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show yourself. Let's read it. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself. Lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth. Render a reward to the proud. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things, and all the workers of iniquity boast themselves? They break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and afflict thine heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger, and murder the fatherless. Yet they say, The Lord shall not see it, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. Understand, ye brutish among the people, and ye fools, when will you be wise? He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? He that chastises the heathen, shall not he correct? He that teacheth man knowledge, shall not he know? And the Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law, that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity, until the pit be digged for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. But judgment shall return unto righteousness, and all the upright in heart shall follow it. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Or who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord have been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence. And when I said, my foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. In the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. Shall the throne of iniquity have fellowship with thee, which frameth mischief by a law? They gather themselves together against the soul of the righteous and condemn the innocent blood. But the Lord is my defense, and my God is the rock of my refuge. And he shall bring upon them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. Yea, the Lord our God shall cut them off. So who does vengeance belong to? The Lord belongs to God. And that's a declarative factual statement that's reinforced that truth reinforced by repetition in verse 1. And then uh, that verse ends with, with a plea that God would conduct himself according to that character trait. So right off the bat, in, in verse 1, Psalm 94 has uh, what we would call imprecatory language. We see that in the Psalms. That's when David or whoever the psalmist is calls on God to render a verdict and issue a sentence. I'm calling down judgment. And it's something that often tends to make us a little uncomfortable, and it shouldn't. <laughs> the reason it does, I suppose, is that you and I, we are, we are recipients of God's grace and mercy, and we know that there is no merit on our own for us to deserve those things, and we would rightly like them extended to others as well. But God's grace and mercy are conditioned on our faith on our repenting and believing. God is glorified when we turn to Christ for that grace and mercy. But for any who refuse to turn to him, for those who refuse to repent and believe, 
in who God is for us in Jesus Christ. Well, well, God must then be glorified in them receiving the righteous judgment that they deserve. When it says, show thyself, at the end of verse 1, that's the Hebrew word, yafah, and it literally means to shine forth, to, to send out beams like light would or the sun, to, to cause to shine. And God delivering justice, avenging those who are, are his against those who reject him and rebel against him, that is a means to an end of him being glorified. Um, any discomfort that, that we have in this God-inspired imprecatory language, because it wasn't just David who wrote this. God told David to write this and other uh, imprecatory phrases in the Psalms. Uh, it, it's more likely from our, our misunderstanding or, or how words have changed over time in our current usage of words like vengeance. Um, so a better translation might be, O Lord, to whom rich... I knew I was going to have a hard time saying this word. <laughs> o Lord, to whom retributive... Retributive? I don't like that. Retributive justice belongs. Um, when, when we typically think of vengeance... Well, it carries the concept of um, angry passions welling up in us uh, in order to gratify a vindictive spirit uh, about something that was done to us. Well, that's not who God is, and um, that's not what's meant here. Dr. Samuel Johnson, um, he was an author from England in the 1700s, and he wrote one of the first English dictionaries, and he made a distinction between revenge and what is meant here, this retributive justice. He said, revenge is an act of passion, but, but vengeance, like we find here in verse 1, that's an act of justice. There's a difference there. Uh, he said, injuries are revenged, crimes are avenged. And it belongs to God. It belongs to the one who, who sees more than we see, who knows more than we know, quoting God's word in Deuteronomy 32:35, God has the apostle Paul write in Romans 12:19 to Christians, "Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord." Can God not handle it? Does he not know what to do, what's best to do to to ensure that justice will occur? And sometimes we doubt this. And, and when we do, when we try to be a, a subcontractor for, for God's retributive justice, really what we are saying, whether we intend to or not, really what we are saying is um, if the person that's directed towards is a believer, we're saying that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was inadequate to address their sin. Or if they're an unbeliever, we're saying God's punishment um, at the destiny to which they're headed is insufficient. Of course, we would never say that, um, but that's what our emotions and our actions are communicating when we try to assist God with vengeance or retributive justice. Uh, verse 2, it echoes the, the last two words of verse 1. He's just here in verse 2, he's asking God again to take up his position as judge over all and to render a verdict and also the accompanying just sentence or, or reward in the King James, that, that's not a positive thing. Typically, we think of reward as a positive uh, thing. It just means recompense, them reaping what they sow. And then we get deeper into the actual fear section uh, where David begins to describe what's causing his concern 
and what's threatening his faith in God. In verse 3, David asks a question that we find frequently in the Psalms, and that's a, it's a source of frustration for him, and I'm sure for you and I at times. What does he ask? How long? How long, O Lord? How long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? Do you ever feel that way? Do you, do you think that way? Or if, if not, do you not pray that question just like David is here? Why are the wicked in charge? And, and will you do something, God, about their insolent rebellion against you? And then verse 4 describes um, them in an additional question. How long shall they utter, literally gush forth, I mean just spewing out. How long shall they utter and speak hard things? Hard meaning arrogant. And these workers of iniquity, it says that they boast themselves. When you hear that, does it set you on edge? It does me. Um, if, if it's on TV, I definitely want to change the channel or sometimes send the remote via the screen. <laughs> um, yeah, this vengeance, right, David? <laughs> um, how long? How long? That's the uh, question, and, and we, we echo what David's asking here. Uh, it's, it's actually echoed all the way to the book of Revelation, something that's yet to happen. In Revelation chapter 6, um, the saints that are killed during that tribulation period, John sees them underneath the soul, their souls underneath the throne uh, of God, and that's her question. How long, Lord? How long? And um, when are you going to act in your power to deliver justice? And it's never just words, is it? I mean, that's what it said in verse 4. They, they speak. They utter hard things. Um, ideas matter. Words matter because they are always followed by actions. Look, look at verse 5 and 6 because this is a state of those who were in control at the time uh, David wrote this. It says, They break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and they afflict thine heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger, and murder the fatherless, because they, they cannot attack God. They cannot reach him. They, they will attack those who are his. In verse 6, the very people that God says in his word that those he has put in power are, are to protect, they oppress. The widow and the stranger and the fatherless. And then verse 7 uh, tells us the reason that they do and that they continue to do so. They believe they act in, in complete uh, impunity. They say, the Lord shall not see, uh, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. Uh, Charles Hannon Spurgeon uh, said about this verse, when men believe that the eyes of God are dim, it is no reason to wonder that it gives them full license for their most brutal passions. God's omniscience, his omnipresence are denied by them and that requires an answer um, if fear is going to be left for faith if the answer to how long and the foolish perspectives and words and actions of these wicked rebellious god deniers um, it, it has to be addressed and it is in verses 8 through 14 that's where david begins to recollect the the facts and, and jesus follower please never forget what we've learned uh, in so many uh, Psalms, as we're in Psalm 94 now, and probably the vast majority have had this as, as its outline. The, the first step out of fear, out of a fear that, that incapacitates us and that hinders us from giving God glory, that first step is to focus on our facts, to shift our focus from fear um, to the facts. 
to give our gaze to the facts that God has revealed in his word. L listen to the response of verses 8 through 10. Uh, to the wicked who, who speak arrogant things and who break in pieces God's people and oppress those who are in need, all the while thinking God doesn't see or God doesn't regard. What does he say? It says, understand, you brutish among the people and you fools. When will you be wise? And then verses 9 through 10, the one who created your ear. You don't think he's listening to your wicked, arrogant words? The one who formed the intricacies of the human eye. You doubt that he sees what you are doing? That's ridiculous. You know what? No, it's actually brutish. It's a King James word, literally stupid. <laughs> it's stupid. And the logic that's presented here um, by God through David, it's, in, it's inescapable. Uh, because once you recollect the fact that God is our maker, the creator, you, you cannot deny the reality that he sees and he hears and uh, he's aware <laughs> and he records every thought, every word, every act. What, what the psalm doesn't address uh, with this argument, because it's completely unthinkable to David, is the incredulous brutishness or stupidity that's so prevalent in our own day that there are people who deny that God is their maker. I mean, you've got to go all the way back to Genesis. I'm thankful we've got a Sunday school class that's studying that right now. If that foundational fact from the opening pages of Scripture is denied, well, then there's no argument available to dissuade a person from whatever wickedness they want to do, whatever's described here. Uh, there's, there's no really argument to inform them of their need for a Savior if they don't think they need one. No wonder our world's in the condition that it's in today. Verse 11 then reminds us of, of this fact. It says, The Lord knows that the thoughts of man, their vanity, they're, they're a lack of breath. They're unsubstantial. They're empty. At least these kind of thoughts uh, here are. Uh, to think... <laughs> that we're anything without him, um, that, that we are in charge, that we can think whatever we want, say whatever we want, do whatever we want in opposition to him and his will and his word and not be held to account and not experience his retributive justice. Yeah, those are some truly vain thoughts. They're vain ideas about life. Verse 12, uh, it says that it is a blessing. Blessed. Um, happiness. <laughs> when God intervenes in a person's life and he chastens them. When God will love us enough to bring us back to the reality of the situation and help us recollect the facts out of his word. And when you think about it, that's what happened immediately prior to you coming to faith in Christ, isn't it? I mean, you, you were a lost sinner. You might have had thoughts like are described here. Um, that's the starting point for someone to trust in Jesus as their Savior. We're shown our, our great sin and thus our need for a great Savior. And it doesn't stop then. Even for the Christian, that's a sustaining part for someone continuing in Christ as their Savior. How blessed we are when God chastens us, when he renews our mind through his word as believers. Amen? That's a blessing that God would do that for us. And we're told why God does this in verse 13. That, so you can say, so that, thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit be digged 
for the wicked. Why does God chasten us at times? Man, what a beautiful description of a life when there's a relationship with God through faith in Jesus. So we have rest. That's why he does it. Storms can be howling, wicked people being wicked, God's people being broken in pieces and afflicted, and the helpless being oppressed by the wicked. But in all of that and more, the Christian has a rest. We have a rest that the unbeliever, they have no experience or understanding of. Uh, We have a peace that passes all understanding, right? That's what's ours in Jesus Christ. Uh, At least we do when we begin this rise in trajectory out of fear toward faith by focusing on the facts God's revealed. One final fact that we can take to the bank that's presented in verse 14 um, as this transition from facts to faith now proceeds. It says in verse 14, for the Lord will not, he will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. And so uh, I guess you could say that there's a positive side of the fact of God's omnipresence for those who are his. God is not just a God who is everywhere at all the time to record every wrong thought or word or deed. But for those who are his by faith in Jesus Christ, he is a God who is everywhere and he will never leave. I'm so glad he is, aren't you? With us at all the time, accessible all the time. That's a promise of Jesus in John 6, 37. He said, all that the Father has given me shall come to me. And he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Ever. <laughs> and what a precious promise in the fact Christ relates to us in John 10, 28, and 29. And I give unto them eternal life how long is that that's pretty long beginning as soon as you trust christ the savior i give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand my my father who gave them to me he's greater than all and no man's able to pluck them out of my father's hand based on that last fact there in verse 14 won't you rise to faith even in the midst of the wicked working By believing in that beautiful and powerful assurance was first given to God's people in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, but it's extended to you and the better covenant that God's made with you through Jesus. Verses 15 to 23, David, David rises to faith. And God's promises continue in verse 15. He says, but judgment shall return unto righteousness and all the upright in heart shall follow it. So the current unjust rule and wicked oppression that David saw, and we see it today in our day, it won't continue on forever. It won't. That's what we're promised in verse 15. Justice will again be founded on righteousness. So there's your answer to all those how longs in verses 3 and 4. I mentioned the souls of those great tribulation saints. We won't be here for that. We get a little glimpse of that in in Revelation 6. Um, They lost their lives during that time period for their faith in Jesus Christ. And they cry out underneath the throne. How long, sovereign Lord? Revelation 6, 9 through 11. How long, sovereign Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and you avenge our blood? And God's answer is given in the very next verse. He says, wait a little longer. You can trust me. I've never lost a battle. I've never promised something that I didn't come through on. Verse 16, as David posing this question, 
Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Or who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? And, and while it's true that God gives us such grace in this right here, in the church of Jesus Christ, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to, to help us and encourage us, and God works through them. Ultimately, it's God, isn't it? It's God who rises up for us against evildoers. He, he is one, in Jesus Christ, he is the one who stands up for us against the workers of iniquity, even if he does it through our family in Christ. And that's David's answer to the question of verse 16. We find it in verses 17 and 18. Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence. And when I said, my foot slippeth, well, thy mercy, O Lord, help me up. His, his mercy, if, if God was not what he's described in this song as, ever present, a never forsaking helper we can depend on, but well, we, we couldn't survive. If his mercy, chesed, that Hebrew word talking about his covenant love, you can count on it. He made it with you. He won't take it away. If that was not our strong support, he says, my foot would have slipped fatally forever. Well, let's read verse 19 once more because it's beautiful. In the multitude of my thoughts within me, that comforts delight my soul. Is your brain filled with a multitude of thoughts sometimes? Mine is. And what a change here. What a contrast from the opening of this song, like most of them, where it's full of despair and fear. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a multitude of thoughts when the wicked are triumphing when they're uttering arrogant things, when they're breaking God's people into pieces. But what does he say here brings peace and comfort? An immediate cessation to all of that? Would that do it? Okay, now I don't have a problem. That's not what he says. You know, it says in verse 19, it is the comforts of God that delight David's soul in, in all of that. So, as Elizabeth Elliot says, the joy, this secret of joy is not me in different circumstances. It's me and Jesus Christ. Um, thinking's not a problem. I think we have too little thinking, honestly, in our day. Um, wrong thinking is the problem. Sometimes we have a multitude of thoughts in our head. And unfortunately, we probably listen to ourselves a lot more than we ought to. We should be speaking to ourselves. That's what God's doing to us through all these moving from fear to faith psalms where that emphasis, that step, that transition out is, is the facts. He's asking us to speak truth to our, ourselves. Verse 20, the, the, that fact and the faith that David's now expressing, it doesn't mean that he's no longer concerned about the wicked or the oppression that's going on. It's still going on. Verse 20 has David calling out to God because really this whole situation is incongruent. <laughs> Uh, when David asks there in verse 20, shall the throne of iniquity, of, of sin, ha have fellowship with you, God? What he's saying is that it makes no sense <laughs> to him. Uh, for a righteous and a just God to allow these wicked leaders, and it talks about what they do, they frame mischief by a law. Do we have leaders that frame mischief by a law? Like endorse sin by a law? Yeah. You got, we better understand there's a big difference um, between obedience and morality. Obedience is, well, I'll do whatever I 
told to do. Morality is, I'll do whatever is right. There's a big difference there. And um, it's still frightening <laughs> for David. I mean, look, look at what he describes in verse 21. They gather together. All these wicked people, they were outnumbered. They gather themselves together against the soul of the righteous and condemn the innocent blood. So the situation hasn't changed from the beginning of the psalm, but something has. Something has changed. David's focus has been altered from only that threat to the facts. That the Lord, as verse 22 reminds us, the Lord is my defense. The Lord. And he's yours too, Christian. That God is the rock of his refuge. The word rock in Hebrew. A giant, uh, immovable boulder. It's not like a little rock you could pick up. So stability. Not going anywhere. And that's why David is living in faith now here at the end of the song. A faith that will bring upon the wicked their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. Yea, the Lord our God shall cut them off. And what he's telling us there is God will deal with this whole mess in his perfect timing. We do not need to worry ourselves about doing that. He will bring upon the wicked their own iniquity. You know, that's a powerful statement, but it's also a warning even for us. Um, because that's a retributive justice that's already happening for the wicked. That doesn't need to wait till Christ returns and he brings things to a close. Uh, and I can't think of anything worse. Because this is something that's frequently taught in Scripture. What we find here in this, this last verse, and this last phrase, he will bring upon the wicked their own iniquity. Do you understand what God means here? That when a man has sinned, it is at least part of his punishment that he is inclined to sin again. <laughs> and so on, and so on, and so forth. What, what a terrible consequence before the ultimate and final one. Enslaved to sin. That's so different than what we have available to us when, when we've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. We've been freed from not just the penalty of sin, where we have an eternal home in heaven. We, we've been freed from the power of sin. And the promise of full and final retributive justice at God's hand, should they reject Christ their whole life long, it's given there at the end. He will cut them off. And like the first verse of Psalm 94, it's repeated again for emphasis to fuel our faith, that God will take care of it. He will cut them off. And so if we find ourselves weary with the rule of the wicked and the attacks that they're making on God by attacking God's people, Psalm 94 encourages us to take heart, saying don't let fear reign. Don't let it prompt you to take matters into your own hands because God will handle them and he will deliver justice so much better than we ever could or should. Let the one who sees all and hears all and is over all, let him do what he promises to do. Just keep your eyes on him. To leave fear, focus on the facts. Find yourself in a place, when you do that, when we do what we have been taught so many times here, we will find ourselves out of fear in a place of faith more quickly than we could ever imagine. And that's just Christianity. Believing that Jesus Christ is everything we need for every moment that we live. Isn't that how Paul described it in the book of Galatians? I am crucified with Christ. And I, don't, I no longer live. But the life that I now live, I live by what? Faith. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So do what is promised here. Rest. 
Rest in what he is teaching you in his word. Delight. Delight in the comforts that we have in Christ. We have to crowd our mind with faith. Do not leave any room for fear. And that's for our good, and it's for his glory. I'm going to ask Tommy to praise you.